George, are you there? Hello. Hey, yes, George. Yes, I am. Hey, Welcome. Richard. Yeah. Welcome. Well, we have a great turnout tonight. Good. And, um, we have some great questions, so let's jump right mm-hmm. in. Okay, let's do it. All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to our monthly mastermind with Mr. George Ross, uh, the man who has been in business for over 60 years, one of the greatest deal makers and probably has done more deals in New York City than anyone else alive today. Taught at the law school at NYU, at NYU for over 20 years, author of two best-selling books and, uh, apprentice or, uh, co-star of the apprentice and right-hand man to the man who's currently in the White House. So welcome, George. Good to be here. George, this last week has been, or last couple of weeks, have actually been very hard to watch. The devastation that we've seen along the Gulf Coast, in Florida, the Virgin Islands, many of the Caribbean Islands. There's a lot of agencies out there looking to help and restore life to normal for people who have been in the path of these massive storms. And I know we've talked about philanthropy in the past. Uh, there's a lot of organizations, and they run the full spectrum from large agencies like the Red Cross to smaller individual efforts where you know some people have chartered boats and planes to bring in relief supplies. So I'd like to tap into some of your wisdom when it comes to philanthropy. If you were looking to help out, how would you decide where to place your funds? Well, that's a good, that's a good question uh, as to where to do it. The, one of the things is, is the problem that you have basically is that well, you take Red Cross, which is a wonderful organization and big. Of course, they've got a lot of overhead, but they do, do a fantastic job. But a lot of the smaller ones that you're talking about, this, you know, that's not going to be tax deductible because they're not charities. So that's you true. may want to take whoever is, is, is uh, contributing the money may want to say, well, at least let me take advantage of it on my taxes at this point that I can use as a charitable contribution. So I would basically look, uh, have them suggest that they search the net and come out with, with one of the charities that they think uh, is most most uh, desirable as far as they're concerned. You have some that are especially for Puerto Rico, some for the various islands, but this is a, a really something which is which is personal. People have to make their own decisions, but that's what I would do. Okay, that's a that that's good advice. One of the things we've talked about in the past as well is the notion of seeing a direct path between your contribution and having a direct impact to where it's needed. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, certainly the British Virgin Islands, I don't know if there's any, for example, U.S. registered charities or Canadian registered charities that would qualify for relief efforts. Well, I don't know, but I think you you can basically, if you search the Internet, you could probably get the answer. You want charities which are qualified for those various locations. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I think you could probably get it. I'm sure they're there. I just haven't looked for them, uh, but I'm, I'm sure there are. And you can pick one out and then search it and see what it does. But, you know, the, the devastation is so dramatic, so dramatic at that point. Whatever you, whatever charity you choose could certainly use the money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's move on. But then philanthropy to- is, a, is a personal. It's personal. People have to decide among themselves. Yes. What they what what they want to do, where they want it, where the money goes, but you you can really search the internet and get the information to steer you to a charity that you think would be most most beneficial for what you have in mind. It's very interesting, you know. I know of two people who have both said, you know what, I yes, I've got a lot going on in my life, but I've got uh, I can make time over the next several weeks, even the next several months, 
to physically go there. I've got leadership skills to go there and be on the ground and help people organize uh, a reconstruction effort. And uh, good. I'm, I was am- amazed to see people make willing to make those contributions. And and I know if you have wonderful people, wonderful yeah. that they do, they can do it and want to do it. That's that's great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next, we've got uh, one of our members, someone who I know reasonably well, who is the subject of a frivolous lawsuit. And it's one of these lawsuits that's designed to, quote-unquote, make an example of the defendant. And interestingly, the, the plaintiff has significantly more money and resources than the defendant. And moreover, they've not provided any hard evidence in discovery to substantiate their claims. Meanwhile, the defendant spent a ton of money. Well, what is the claim? I don't understand what, they, what their claim is. The claim is uh, use of intellectual property that, frankly, I think in most people. Improper use of intellectual property or property that is controlled by the, the plaintiff? Correct. Correct. Okay. And, and, and in truth, um, th- that intellectual property, certainly from everything that I've seen, most of that intellectual property is actually in the public domain, and there's many. Well, that's published, the end of it. That's, okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, many published so it's records. Not, so it's, yeah. Basically, so what you're saying is, is that with it, it's not uh, copyrighted or anything, which they're basically you can look at and say this belongs to me, or they can right. prove it belongs to me. Right. Okay. So, how would what would you advise the defendant to do in a situation like that? I mean, well, first of all, okay, a couple of things that. Yeah. Uh, one, you know, there is a provision where you can sue for f- any frivolous lawsuit to get back all legal fees and everything else. And this may be claimed for a frivolous lawsuit based on the fact that the, uh, uh, the information is not copyrightable or not, not really is something which, uh, has been where they violated any, any agreement between them or anything as to intellectual property. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is, they ought to be able to come up with some kind of a uh, a lawsuit saying that this is a uh, a, a uh, hara- not harassment but a prohibition against uh, the the defendant making a living uh, doing what they're doing whatever it is that they're doing and I assume that what they're doing is something that's in connection with the uh, the the, the uh, proper intellectual property which is being contested right and that there's willful there's discrimination. Put a big number on it, like a million dollars, five million dollars, or something. It doesn't make any difference what you claim. It's just really for the purpose of getting the attention of the plaintiff. If they know there is a possibility that they could be hit for a major lawsuit, so damages you can put in the fact that as a result of the the actions which have been taken by the plaintiff, uh, the defendant here can't get it, can't get a job. Nobody hires them, and there it's, it's stained the record. It's malicious interference with his con- contractual rights. There are a lot of bases under which it could be done, and my suggestion is do them. Put them in, even if you don't, they, they may not win, and you probably don't want it to win, but it would be enough, probably, it would be to get the plaintiff's attention to say, well, I've got more at stake here than just uh, making an example of the, the, the defendant. It, there's a possibility the defendant might win something of, of substance, and that should, may be enough to forestall the suit. Okay, that's that. That's a very good idea. It uh, is uh, a, a fairly aggressive countersuit. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, obviously, arguing uh, antitrust, anti-competitiveness type things you are. You got it. 
are Correct. very difficult to and prove. And as part of that, as part of that lawsuit at that point, have the uh, uh, the defendant's lawyer at that point make a claim for discovery. Wants to see all the records, which this, which they which they've got where it is. It's been it's been involved uh, in where they claim the claim to show that the intellectual property has been stolen. The, the the rights of the intellectual property. They can certainly ask for all kinds of discovery with all kinds of questions, more which might be very difficult or embarrassing for the plaintiff to answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's the way to do it. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, uh, certain for for the uninitiated who's, who've never been sued, it's a it's an emotionally. Welcome toxic. to the club. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there's a, there's, you can't get a good result out of it, or certainly to stop it. But you get the plaintiff uh, to think about what they're doing instead of just uh, pursuing their course of conduct, which they feel is not going to have, have any adverse effect on them. So you have to make sure that there is a possible adverse effect. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good advice. Yep. Okay. Next. Um, next question is from Patrick Trahan. Patrick, are you on the line? Actually, Victor. Actually, Victor, it's myself. It's not calling for Pat. Okay. Pat has a, of an army meeting tonight, so. Ah, okay. <laughs> So it'll, it'll be myself asking. Um, you can hear me okay? Yes. So the question I had this evening was, um, Patrick, myself, is my business partner. We plan on doing a few multifamily developments in town. Mm-hmm. Plan A is to build and hold the property as a rental. But if it falls through, we want to be able to sell the property, either to investors as our plan B or directly to individual pur- purchasers in the form of condos. That's our plan C. For investors, this should be relatively easy, but to sell to individuals, most people will be attracted by standard track builders with a good and long track record and nice marketing materials. How would we market units to the general public? Um, won't buyers be skeptical of us because we don't have a track record? And in our province, um, our, certain parts of the building are covered up to seven years. There's a warranty that we'd be able to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just figure out how to sell that to private people. Well, sell it to private people at this point, assuming you have, if you have a, a doing it as condominiums, I assume there has to be some type of a, uh, a condominium plan, and that may require some kind of government supervision that you have to comply with certain things that you do if you want to sell a condominium to the general public. So that'll immediately uh, give you the, the, the guidelines that you're going to have to meet if you want to uh, do a condo and sell it outgoing you know so it's uh, there as far as uh having a track record uh the building at this if, if you once you build a model if you have a model or you will have a model at that point if you mm-hmm. built one of the units that's your track record people will look at that and say yeah i really like it if they like it they'll buy it <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you have to they, they go on it because you're a, a reputable builder that's done this eight or ten times and no the build the property or the unit probably be able to stand on itself and there are many possibilities it could be as rentals it could be uh, for sale it could be uh, a a development area where you develop these incorporating projects and syndicate the whole thing and you give uh, uh, the investors a share of the profit the share of the profits from the the uh, operations of the project uh, mm-hmm. it, you know there are so many variables 
that can be used, but it really depends on uh, the timing that comes up uh, when you time. First thing is you got to get into the ground, or you got to somehow uh, uh, cover it by uh, by brochures or you know uh, with advertising or a a, a a building you know a a uh, business plan which indicates what you're going to do. Now the further down the road you go, the easier it is to to, to come up with something. When it's when it's totally speculative, you say, well, I have a piece of land, but there's nothing on it. And what you want to sell is, is becomes a lot more ephemeral and people don't want to touch it. So the further you get down the pike, the better it is. And you, 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 you're right down the pike. In other words, plan A, build a whole property as a rental. Why not? Yeah, so Why that's not? the plan. Is, is, the, is the rental is the main target? And then if the, the market the changes... The rental is the main target. But as you go, how many units are you planning on building? Anywhere between basically 25 to 150. Great. We have we have a few different models. So. Okay, good. So, but how many you going to build twenty five at one time, or are you going to build one? You going to build a model? Yeah, depending. Like we have the one here that we're looking at in actual in town here. The, the main model that we're looking at right now would be twenty five in one shot, one building. Okay. Uh, the other plan is a larger plan where it would be up to one hundred fifty doors, but in three to four phases. Okay, but th that's fine. Either either way, but what what you have to really have is set up is you have to set up a model unit, okay. which which basically you set up a model unit, what it's going to look like, you can furnish it, so so that the potential customer, whoever it may be, to be a part, person who's looking to rent or a person who's looking to buy, they have something visual that they can look at and say, yeah, okay, I see it, I like it. You know, you don't have to build a whole project, just you have to give them something which will show them what's what's going to look like and they can make a decision. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, because nobody can actually visual is the best way. Visual is the best. No way. question, no question. Okay. A visual, a visual, especially what what's there is 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 great. Of course, you have a brochure, and also with this, you can have people sign up with it, with they like it, and you know, on a, a basis where they can put up a put up a deposit if they like it, but they get the deposit back in when they see the actual building, and they don't uh, they don't know what to buy it. In other words, you give them a, a, a right to to Look, see, but being allowed to back off. So you give them the first crack at it, but nevertheless, they're not bound. But that's a good selling point, it's a good indication, especially if you have a lot of people that sign up, and it becomes easy when you go to the next person and say, We have 25 units, or 23 of them are already spoken for. They're not spoken for, they haven't put up the money, and it's not a final deal, but meanwhile, you have uh, some have given you a, an indica a indication of sincerity. No, that's a, that's a great idea. That's perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you. So, so George, um, in your experience, obviously, if it, you know, for example, even a physical mock-up of uh, what some of the interiors might look like, maybe a kitchen mock-up, things like that, absolutely, can be absolutely. done somewhat inexpensively, even in a in a showroom type. type absolutely, setting. absolutely, absolutely. Any feel for how many units would we would need to have before that made sense? I mean, for two or three units, it doesn't make sense. For a hundred, it does. Um, well, that's a gamble you got to take at this point. You're saying now how, how big you want to do, but right. what you what you're doing is the sales room. We'll call it the sales room, which you put up. That's relatively inexpensive mm -hmm. to to set it up and make it look like you. So you put on you you got a, a showroom basically, and you put on the walls. 
you put the, the pictures of what's going to look like outside with a, a looking into a garden area and you really would make it a model home that somebody could look at and visualize although it's not on the site but they can see get, get a good idea of what it's going to look like this is what the kitchen is going to look like and this is what the bedrooms are going to be enough so that they've got an idea without actually having the model in front of them no, it's not a true model house, but it's a, it's a, a sample of what it's going to be enough so that somebody can look at it and say, "Yeah, I really like that." And you can so do a smaller get them interested. Yeah, we get them interested at that point, yeah. but they're not necessary. But they're not bound until they see the actual thing. Like, sorry, George, in your opinion, like a couple of site trailers put together and then mocked up, even if it's a smaller size square footage, it sure. at least gives an idea of what it looks like, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Give them something visual. Visual is what sells. Perfect. And of course, 3D renderings are, are relatively inexpensive to, to get drawn up these days. There's some, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. It's relatively simple to get it up as people can do it. And, uh, you know, you also have uh, the, there are uh, uh, different a web thing on the web where it's it's maneuverable where that you can move it so you say well this is it if you change the kitchen or you move it around and physically you can do it on a CAD cam uh, arrangement where uh, they can change it visually while you're still they're still there that's possible because I have seen where where there's a design layout and so I said, well, this is, I'm going to design the kitchen. And he said, well, I don't like it. The, the, the refrigerator where you're putting it, put it on the other side of the stove. And physically, they just press it on the computer and they move it. So they handle the components. So you can really design something which is custom, which is custom designed, but not, not built. That's a pretty good idea. Now, for a tenant, like if it's tenant based, though, if you're going to do something custom, would, you'd want a longer term tenant than just a one year contract, would you not? Yeah, just but that's any... that, that's you know the, the answer is yes, you would want it, but you got to sell them first. Yes. In other words, if they once you know that once you sell them and they're ready, they're ready to sign up and saying what part. But then you can say, well, your your custom, this is going to be custom designed for you, and therefore we, you can't rent it for six months. We want a year, two years, three years, or whatever. You can do mm -hmm. that, but do that later on. Don't make that a pre a, a condition initially. Mm -hmm. So you just say, here's what it is, and then you you you, you does he really like it? And the more they get involved the stronger the bond is between you as a, the, the seller or the builder and them as the customer. It's true. Great ideas. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Perfect. Um, next, we have Vincenzo from Edmonton. Are you there on the line? Yes. Is he here? I don't know. You may need to press star six to unmute. Vince, are you on the line? I think he's there, but we may need to come back to him. Um, okay. I think I see him online, but okay. So next, uh, next, George, let's go back to the Caribbean. 
Um, you know, we, we're looking at several projects to rebuild areas that have been devastated by, by the, you know, recent hurricanes. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we don't want to be seen as profiting from other people's misery. On the other hand, nobody works for free. So how would you suggest approaching the balance between the intense short-term humanitarian need with the longer-term need to rebuild? Well, you know? okay, the, 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 you're talking two different items. Yeah. The short-term humanitarian need has nothing really to do with your building on the site. Okay. In other words, you, unless you're building like the habitats for humanity or something that they throw up in a in a hurry and it's for people who live there, but it's a short, it's it's just an interim basis. Correct. It seems to me that what you're talking about is not interim, but something really that's going to be a, a new a new structure. Correct. And on a, on property which has been devastated, hey, that's fine, and don't feel badly about it uh, that uh, you're doing it uh, be, because of the fact that uh, somebody else's misery. You know, the, the misery which was there was created by the by nature by a hurricane, not by you. You're solving it by creating something new which has been wiped out, and so you got new uh, a, a new structure or roads built, uh, infrastructure or whatever it is that's there, and or creating a new community of houses. That's wonderful. You don't have to worry about the yeah, but you're making a profit. Hey, come on, that's what builders do. They make a profit. Absolutely. They restore something or they tear it down. So don't feel bad about that. Uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's humanitarian to rebuild something that has been destroyed. To build it at a loss is not where you want to be or even equal. That's nice, but it doesn't, that, that, that's for some, for some organization that doesn't care about a profit and uh, a, a big company that say, I'll do it just for the, uh, you know, for the credit of having done it. But for the private private person, you're going to build it for the purpose of making money, and don't feel bad about it. That's that's what it is. You're building something. You're replacing something that was destroyed by an act of God. Fine. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at, uh, we, we started talking to a number of manufacturers that can build modular since so much of the infrastructure mm-hmm. has been destroyed. Great. Modular is um, wonderful. I think it is too. I, I talked with the general manager of uh, Clayton Building Solutions, one of uh, the yeah. Berkshire Hathaway companies, and mm-hmm. uh, and he's promised the next four months of production to the U.S. government for FEMA, and and he also said I probably can't take another order for the next 18 months. So the the acute need is also here stateside. Uh, it's not just in the island. So we found a a, a builder in one of the Caribbean islands that we think has some excess capacity. So rather than sorting, sourcing materials stateside, we'll actually have um, have materials and modules coming in by 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 barge from Central America. Uh, That's with, great. With good build quality. That's great, but I, I would not uh, overlook the possibility that you may be able to get some major major company to do a, do some funding or do this as a as a, a, a re- redevelopment project that they would like to have their name on. Okay. In other words, where they would do some of the, they would do some of the funding or the put 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 something over to make it happen, and uh, they can say, well, good, we built uh, eighteen homes, twenty homes, what have you, in a certain area, whatever, and just for the uh, the good PR. You know, that's a wonderful uh, opportunity. That's a that's a very good idea as well. But they don't have to build it. No. They have to basically. So you're coming with the idea and say, "Good," and we're going to put your name the name on it. It was done by a, 
uh, BP or whoever it is that was uh, the community or uh, Berkshire Hathaway, whatever it is, I'm sure that there are uh, major companies that would want to be uh, do something because of the humanitarian need and the goodwill that is created by meeting the, the demand, but they don't know how to do it. Well, they don't know what to do. This is a perfect opportunity. You're going to say, here's what you're going to do. We're going to build this. We're going to take it in. We're going to build modular houses, and this is what it is. And it's, 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 it's going to be you're sponsored by you. You get all the goodwill of having sponsored this. That's a, that's a wonderful selling point and, and not too difficult for some of these major companies because they're always looking for something that's, uh, that, that has on the public, public good which gives them uh, you know, this, a, a good showcase for their product or they are they, that show that they're public spirited. An obvious one would be Richard Branson because he, you know, he resides in the yeah. BVI. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I can see at that point that he would be interested in it because you're doing all the work. All he's doing is supplying the funds. Right. Right. That's great. Because that's if he has to do the work, that's a different ballgame. But you're doing all the work, and you're saying, "Here, fine. You, here's what it is. Here's what we're doing. Here are the funds, and this is what you're going to produce at the end. We're going to have so many houses and so many places, and this is the timetable." And uh, the answer is, "Yeah, that, I can see that being uh, very attractive to somebody like Branson, who's got a pot full of money and doesn't know where to put it, but he's he, he's, he's uh, you know uh, mind he he minds the, the the community and so and." And all the islands and so on, and the, you know, that says, yeah, this is something really nice to do, uh, but, which he would like to do as a, uh, a philanthropist, but he doesn't know how. Well, I know you're in the doing week, the hard work. You're doing the hard work. He's just coming and put, uh, putting in the money. Which sure. Is the easy part because he's got it. Yeah. I know in the yeah, days that yeah, followed, that I know in the days that followed the storm, his, his home on Necker Island was destroyed. But he was physically on the ground in one of the neighboring islands of Virgin Gorda, helping people with his own hands, uh, with his own yeah. and with his team. Um, yeah. So I, I know he's certainly uh, so inclined to help. Mm-hmm. Great. So. And you make it easy because all he has to do is you, you, you're doing all the hard work on all the, the planning and, and all he's doing basically is supplying the funds. That's great. Okay. Perfect. Um, let's try again for Vince. Uh, Vince, are you on the line? I don't see him here on the line. Okay, I, we'll, we'll try again in, in a moment. Okay, so the next question is from Stefan Arneo. Stefan, are you on the line? Hello, Victor. Hey, Stefan. Go ahead. Oh, hey, this is uh, it's Vince. I just unmuted. Oh, okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Sorry about that. Do you want me to wait till the next question? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Hey, George. Hi. How are you, Vince? Good. Good. How are you? Good. So my question is, um, you worked for much of your career earning income from either law or consulting clients. I suspect much of your wealth was created by business ventures and investments. How did you manage the balance between predictable regular income and business ventures that had greater upside potential? 
did those choices present a fork in the road, and how did you decide? Well, it's good. It's a, it's a very good question, and one I think which is uh, appropriate for most most people that have uh, income coming in from a particular source or a uh, a, a source or we're from a uh, for example law firm or uh, someone that's got uh, that's, that's supplying a product and that has all this has income but predictable income and says what do I do with it? Now the interesting yes. part about it is that the income that you have or the career you're earning the income that's only good as long as you it's, you're earning it so what i'm saying is it, it has a life but once you stop doing whatever is doing the, that income stops so the, the key is really to invest the excess income that you don't need while you still have it and diversify into projects or something where they don't require your time and effort and expertise because that's not where you are. In other words, as a lawyer, I was never a builder of real estate. But what I what I did was I I found uh, clients that were experts in building, and I said to them, I would like to be your partner. Uh, your uh, I would fund the the collateral. In other words, basically the the, the money that you needed when it was needed and I would give you the capital if there was a cash call I would be there but give me three percent five percent two percent whatever it is of your of your project and uh, that's basically what I chose to do now these were builders which were building in areas that I knew were good and these were builders that knew what they were doing so I'm saying now yeah it's a good investment to, to come over there that it'll work out because I know over a period of time, if they're building residential in, in, for example, in the city of New York, that over a period of time that will appreciate in value and the, the rents will go up and it'll turn out to be an intelligent investment to have. And that's what I did. And it turned out very well because over a period of years, it went exactly the, the way that I anticipated it. I had nothing to say with it. I didn't want to vote. I didn't want to think I was trusting the the, the uh, people who own the property and their their knowledge and expertise and that was yes a good diversification so over a period of time it was fine so I took money that I, that I invested there and put it put the, the the income put it there and I now was creating something that was income producing but not for me otherwise it was income producing based on the money that I invested in projects with somebody else but the thing main thing is I trusted their expertise. So that was the, the, the way that I did now. However, I started up the businesses in which uh, there were ventures that uh, I was not, uh, you know, it wasn't me as such, but it were companies that I had faith in and that I said, okay, this is a good shot. Some of them went good. Most of, them, most of them went good. Some of them didn't, but it was worth trying. But the main thing is, is don't sell the ranch at this you have to make sure that if it doesn't work it's not the end of the world that you that you put so much money in there that you can't get back and you you jeopardize the the sort the initial source of income so you say the worst that happened i still have my source of income but i took a, a million dollars and put it over here it turned out to be a bad deal so i lost a million but I still have my income from my law practice or my income from whatever businesses has created the income. It's a tough choice, but it didn't present a fork in the road as such that you had. 
it's just a diversion, but I was not, it was a, a, an alternate route. Not one where I'm saying, good, I'm going to give up my profession or the practice of law to go build major office buildings or something like that. No, that was not, because that, that's not my area of expertise. I, I left the, the, the expertise to the, those, the experts, so I would invest with people or companies that I thought had the expertise in the areas that I thought would work, and my job would be basically to furnish capital or to furnish uh, legal expense, legal fees, or furnish advice, or whatever it may be. So uh, the answer is, yeah, go do that. But you have to be careful that you that, that you don't sink the ship because you put too much money in it. You have to know when to get out. If it goes, goes sour, can you get out? And yes, it's painful, but it's not the end of the world. So, George, did you have projects of your own that you invested in that um, ended up having to swallow a, a very bitter pill? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to build going to build a, a a condominium in Chinatown in Manhattan, and I had the land all picked out, and I put a, took an option on the land. And basically, the the only thing on the land was a uh, a store, a, a retail store, and the retail store was owned by a friend. And I said to him, I said, look, if I if I buy the property at that point, will you give up the store? He says, sure. So I put an option on. I didn't trust him. I put an option on the property, and I said, okay, now I've got an option. I'm ready ready to do it. Uh, you I, will you give up the store? He says, sure. Give me five million dollars, and I'll get out of there. And uh, so that what that made the whole thing no totally unfeasible, and it, I learned one thing: don't trust friends. Right, right. So the answer was that yeah, I never built it. Finally got out; it was okay, but it cost me it cost me money because I had paid for the option. Right, and I so could you, never build it. So you lost uh, you lost some deposit monies, or yes, I did. It was a substantial amount. Yeah, but so that's that you know you that's how you learn. Absolutely, you learn. You learn from your mistakes more. You learn more from mistakes than you learn from success. So speaking of putting projects together, uh, you know I'm raising capital right now for several projects simultaneously, and I'm often hearing from potential funding partners that they love the project, they love the team that they're too busy to engage us right now. I've had some success in going back to those sources, offering them some time-saving solutions for their underwriting. The question is, how hard should I push? You know, when... No, no, let me tell you this point. That's that's a cop-out. Okay. That's a cop-out on their part. To say, I'm not ready, I don't have the time, so the, the, that's, or, or that I'm working on other projects. If you, if you have to sell them that hard, you, you don't have a customer. So what you have to do basically is to is to give them a project, or, or tell them what the result is, and give them a time a time frame on which to say, hey, if you want it, you got it, but you got to sign up within 10 days, 20 days, whatever it is now, and this is what it is, or else I'm giving it to somebody else, and I also have other people sign up. So you have to create some type of a a bidding frenzy that they want to get in, not that you're asking them to get in. Now, if you can show them some of the other projects which you have, which were very successful, and you say, this is what 
I did with, with others. I had investors and now they're getting, they're getting 10% on their money or they got their money back or it's refinanced. And that's what I did. And I intend to do the same thing here. Now, that's a different story because they're saying, oh, they, they start envisioning how much money you can make for them as investors. And you've did it for, done it for others, but you're not really seeking them. You don't need them. Right. If you don't need the money and you don't take it, people will give you as much as you want. So you have to create that one. But if you try to sell, no. Uh, the the, the uh, best example I can give you was that I had placed, when I started out placing mortgages initially, it was it was great mortgages. It was for, there were first mortgages on property. It was there like 16% return. And it was wonderful. And I had all kinds of investors that were saying, oh, sure, George, if you if you do the mortgages, I trust you, I'll invest. And when the time comes for them to write out the check, forget it. They, they got nervous. And then nobody came up with money. Except when I got my mother-in-law invested $5,000 and <laughs> she was the only one. And I had to fund the first deal, but I went to a bank and funded it and they was fine. But then when the investors that weren't in it found out that there was a check that got, they got every month, every month they got a check like clockwork when they're getting the 16%. And they says, why didn't you let me in the deal? And I said, well, you were there. You didn't want to be it. The next time around, they wanted a big piece of it. As, as this as much as I had. It was, it was when I, I said, no, you can't have it. You want fifty thousand? Forget it. I'll only give you ten. Oh, I want fifty. I said, forget it. I'm not letting you go in for fifty. Now, if I didn't take the fifty, they wanted to give me more. Because now at this point that I didn't need the money, they'll give you all you want. Now, as a result of that, as it went on. These became my my base for uh, for raising money, for getting money. Once they started to see the checks, yeah, I wanted. Any time he came out with a deal, they said, "Yeah, I want it. I want a big piece of it." And then if you you could con control it, so that was the the start, basically in doing it. But the, the, that it, it had to convince them that it was worthwhile, and convince them. That uh, other people were, were were getting a great deal. Why aren't you? That's a hard sell, but that's the way to do it. Obviously, you know every investor is a little bit different in terms of what their appetite is, and, and so no on. question, absolutely. One one of the no things question. that I'm I'm running into from time to time is they have a particular. Some investors have a particular model in their mind of of what their investment is. And it might, you know, might even be just a six or eight percent rate of return in today's marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if our project is legitimately, without, you know, doing anything unnatural, legitimately spitting out so much cash that they can get a higher rate of return, now all of a sudden they get nervous. Mm -hmm. What do I do? I just move on to someone who sees what we're, who understands what we're doing, or? Yeah, I understand what you're doing, but uh, have you ever thought of syndication? Oh yeah, this have is. Have you ever thought of? Yeah, we uh, are. No, I said, have you ever thought of of creating an entity, yes. an entity, which has no assets at all? Correct. At this, but it has the expertise for development and to raise money, to get money. Yes. And as a result, at this point, you you let people into the syndicate, and raising a certain amount of money, and for which they will get a certain rate of return. 
over a period of time. Mm-hmm. If they believe you know what you're doing and the rate of return is going to be there, then they'll they'll invest in, but you don't have anything. All you have is the expertise to develop. You don't have a particular project. Oh, so you're saying you do tell a, them these. You're saying do a fund as you, opposed to doing a syndication on a project. Yes. Okay. A syndication based on your expertise in doing projects. Okay. So rather than project based, do it as a fund. Do it as a fund. Okay. And say say fine if we don't want it to. This is this is it. You'll be there, and also you can give them an opportunity. Fine. If I don't if 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 I don't produce something in a certain period of time, get your money back. Right. But if I do produce it, you're in. One of the reasons so you we, got you. One of the reasons you have their. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, but I'm not saying you have them as a potential investor who is an actual investor, but you have they 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 have an opportunity to look if you don't produce something that's good, something that you said you were going to produce. Okay. But they trust you initially with the money, and, you, and basically, and you you give them the the background, all your background, what expertise you have in these developments, and the various ones. You, you give them really the the all your 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 past history of your all the good things which you've done, and say this is what we've done in the past, this is what we intend to do in the future, and this is good, this is why you should be in it, and uh, you sell them the 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 sizzle, not the steak. It could be that we're actually at that point where we could successfully do that. We haven't done it up to now because, number one, we haven't felt that we um, could necessarily convince an investor to, to, to buy into something that was a blank sheet of paper. Um, mm-hmm. And and number two, of course, once you raise the money, if you don't have a project, you, of course, owe them a rate of return. So you now – No, but I, at this point, if you don't have a project, you don't need the money. So then do a capital In other words, plan. what you're doing – yeah, what you're what you're saying is this point. They, they, as far as if you don't have anything specific in mind, then you say, "Fine, I'm you're an, you're a potential investor, but you haven't you've agreed to invest, but you haven't put in any money." And then if you don't want to put in the money, that's okay too. We'll let you out. Okay. In other words, but you, meanwhile, you've signed up and said this, and you give them a certain period of time, relatively short within which to make up their mind to participate in the projects that you're presenting to them. And a short period of time at that to say, well, now push comes to shove. Here it is. We've developed a project you want in. If not, I got 10 other people that want in, 20 people, but you came first. So if you want it, you got a part of it. Otherwise, forget it. If you create that environment, inevitably, they will go along. Makes sense. Makes sense because they, 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 you have the expertise, and you and the key, basically, of getting them to put in the money is to have a project with some of your money in there. Right. So you say, it's not something in the future. I bought this piece of property, and you you got you got a few. And what we've been discussing uh, examples that uh, that basically say where you you're building units for rental or otherwise. That's an ideal project where you have your money in there. So, so now if you want to get investors in that project, say, look, I already have my money and here's what I'm building it. That's tangible because you as the, the, the originator have something to lose. If you have nothing to lose except an idea, they get very reluctant. But when you got money in it of your own, that's your calling card. So you say, look, I don't need you. 
I don't need your money, but but I'll give you an opportunity to make a good investment. Once you get them started, it's it's relatively simple to get continuity. Makes sense. Okay, let's uh, see. Do we have Stefan Arnio on on the line? Stefan, are you there? Can you hear me, Victor? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. I'm just going to pull up my question here. Okay. How are you doing, George? I'm doing good, Stefan. How are you? Very good. Very good. Um, I had a question for you about acquiring deals, acquiring real estate opportunities. And I found that most opportunities come from one of three places, either networking, marketing, or negotiating. And you have you know, many lifetimes of real estate experience. And where do you think the best deals really come from after working with so many successful investors over the years? Well, okay, that's a, that's a good question. But first of all, uh, let's backtrack a little bit. When you say there are uh, three ways, networking, marketing, and negotiating, a negotiation, hey, that's all one way. That's all part of making a deal. They're mm-hmm. not separate. Uh, if marketing is a key element, then nego- networking, you can networking with group and marketing, you're going to have market whatever you're trying to sell to that group and have to negotiate whatever the terms are going to be uh, under which they might be interested in participating. So it's not really three ways. All right? It's just one continuation of how do you get people to invest in deals, really? That's the key. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now, as far as how do clients find their greatest deals, Mm-hmm. Uh, the first, the, the thing is really, they have to have a knowledge of the, of the trends in the marketplace and mm-hmm. the timing that's involved. That's really the key. If they can do that, then that, that's, they reduce the risk, but there are no guarantees. Mm-hmm. Timing is important. I mean, if it's for somebody who's, uh, building a building that's going to take three years to build, the market is what it was when he started, but who knows what it's going to be in three years. So that's mm-hmm. the gamble. But if you assume that the market is going to go up or the trends are going to continue or be even better than what you had three years ago, what you had when you started out, that's good. But that's the gamble. So it's the knowledge of the, the market the market trends and the timing of, of when it's being done. Is it doing now? Is it three three months, six months, or when is it when is when is whatever the project that we have in mind going to come to fruition? But that's the gamble. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's real estate, fella. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. So, well, so George, uh, if you you're talking you about timing, it, yeah, you're talking about timing, and I'm hearing daily that we're you know at, at the end of the cycle and we're headed for a downturn and. You know, even in my own experience, I'm seeing people paying crazy prices, prices I would never pay. I'm happy yeah. to sell in, you know, in that environment, but would never pay those kind of prices. How does someone actually prepare themselves for this next cycle whenever it comes, both to defend? Well, you're not, you're not, you're not understand that, that you, uh, but this, uh, uh, basically, Victor, what you, what you're saying is not typical real estate. Okay. Typical real estate. If, if you look at real estate and you say, if you have the basic philosophy that real estate, which is true, will goes in cycles. It will go up, it will go down, and it will go cycles, but it never disappears in value. It just diminishes in value Correct. at this point for a period of time. If you can outlive the cycle and you have enough money to outlive the cycle, 
it will turn out to be okay because prices have to increase and real estate will uh, all will appreciate over a period of time. Rentals will, of course, go up. The cost of construction will go up. So if you built something that's there, you're already ahead. Somebody's going to build it in the future that they're going to have to pay a higher cost of construction. It's a gamble. It's all, but that's real estate. You can't, you can't avoid it. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a game. You, you, you know it more in retrospect than you do going in. In other words, you have, I'll give you a perfect example that this Donald Trump built his, his, uh, residential building in Chicago. Initially sold out 80% right away. All right. The people had put up a 20% deposit and he sold out 100% of the building. Initially, nothing in the ground. All right. Three years later, the Chicago, the, the real estate field in Chicago for condominiums dropped off. And everybody who bought dropped their 20% deposit and said, Go, I'm, I'm out of here. Now, you couldn't get some, some company come in and buy the other 80%. The market had dropped off more. So you had to reevaluate, and it's going to take longer, and you had to get a mortgage to go along with it because there was no alternative. Ultimately, it turned out good. But in the period of time, the three-year cycle that you have from go from starting with the idea to getting getting construction, the market had changed dramatically. That's real estate. It can go the other way. It can go and change dramatically on the upside. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, and it happened. I mean, you know, uh, the, the best, as I said to told, the best real estate deal I've ever seen is 40 Wall Street, where Donald bought a million square foot building for a million dollars, a dollar a square foot. It was had no tenants and downtown Manhattan was nobody would rent office space. There was no market for office space. So he bought the building of this and then we convinced over a period of time. I convinced him or we went along with and said, you know, this is really a good office building. Make it, you've got to modernize it, bring it up to date, new elevators, new, do, do a, a new lobby, a new whole area at that point. And I think, or you think, that over the period of time that you do this, there's going to be a need for office space in downtown Manhattan because all the city was giving tremendous bonuses for people who took, took commercial buildings and made residential. So I said, someday, it's still downtown Manhattan. It's still Wall Street. It's going to turn. Now, the gamble was when. But he bought it so cheap. And he bought it. He bought this, said he take, took the gamble. And the, the, what he paid a million dollars for, it's now it's worth $500 million. Okay. But the gamble was there. Nobody wanted it. Yeah, certainly 40 Wall Street is maybe one of the best examples I've ever seen. Um, the best deal I've ever, best real estate deal I've seen in my entire career, and I've seen yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. So if, if someone's holding a, a rental property and let's say they have a year remaining on, uh, on a note that's due to renew in a year, should they refinance now or, you know, even if it means paying a repayment penalty so that they don't get caught in a market downturn? Oh, that's it. But that's it. I, you know, yeah. The answer is, would yeah, would I re refinance? Uh, the answer is sure if you can refinance at a better rate. But I have always said, uh, told all the people who have been involved with me, 
I got one cardinal rule. Borrow as much as you can for as long as you can. But you keep yourself a right to right to prepay. So if the market goes up, if the if the rates go up, you 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 got it locked in. On the other hand, if the rates go down at that point, you refinance. So uh, don't be afraid of the term. Take long term. It could take 30 years. You say, what? I'm not going to be there 30 years. Forget it. So who cares? You pay it off in 10. Don't think short. Think long. Right, right. Okay. But I wouldn't gamble on that. It was... Uh, right now, I, I would think if I had to, if if I had to speculate, I would prefer to pay off to refinance now under the present rates, even if I had to pay a prepayment penalty, because I don't think I think rates are low, and I think they're they're bound to go up. They've I think so too. I think the security of knowing that I don't have to renew a note for another five or ten years. Um, with the uncertainty in the market, I think that's a prudent thing to do. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And the, the prepayment penalty—that's just, that's just the cost of doing business. Yeah. But you're doing it when you want to do it, not when you have to do it. That's right. the difference. In another year, at that point, you're you're subject to whatever the market is. Which which kind of segues into the next question because I, and I know this has happened to many people on the call. It's certainly happening to me. Uh, I'm getting bombarded almost daily with offers for debt financing, and my perception is it is, in fact, getting easier and easier to secure. However, mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm also hearing an increasing number of stories of lenders who underwrite deals and then actually fail to perform on closing. So question is, how can we as a borrower perform due diligence on a lender to ensure we're dealing with someone who's going to perform? Have you run into that? Well, yeah, you get it, but the, but the, basically, it's it's a question you can check out with the check the lender, get get uh, criteria as far as the lender is concerned, what mm-hmm. their background is, how what successful rate they have in this in in the in closing. So, and there's no no problem at this point. You you want to do business with the say the bank X Y Z, and they they say yeah, we'll give you a commitment to do this. I say good. How, how what's your record on closing on commitments? You can ask, see what they say, and yeah. say, "See, yeah, I, I'm, I'm there, ready to do it. I will, will you be there when I need you?" In other words, how, what does it take for you to back out our commitments? What does he say to honor your commitments? See how, what they've done. How many other deals have you done like this so that I, I feel comfortable with you as my lender? That's the key. You, as the borrower, feel comfortable with them as your lender. Not that you need them, but you're comfortable with them as your lender. So you're really doing them a favor, more or less by giving them a good deal to invest. Do you see the, the, the subtlety of the transition? Absolutely. It's a completely yeah. different posture. You're you're, yeah. you're standing firm in your position as opposed yeah. to, please, sir, can I have some money? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I can have it. I'm not doing it. This, or, or I'm saying, fine. I'm contacting three or four lenders. At the same time, and say, "Hey, fellas, here it is. Here's, here's the project. What do you what 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 can you offer me? And if you, what you do offer me, how do I know you're going to deliver? 
and they have to uh, convince you that the, that's the route to go. Now, once you have them, and you've made a couple of deals with them or lenders, you got them forever. They know they trust you as a as a, a borrower, and you trust them as a lender, because that that's the banks are in the business of loaning money. And they also like somebody who's a who's a a, 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 a you know somebody they've done business with. Then they'll do lots of business with you because they know it's easy. If you made one loan and it turned out to be good and you're making all your payments on time, and it turns out you got five loans and all the payments are on time, you got the track record for that. They'll, they'll open the vault and give you whatever you want. Very good. I love it. That's golden. Yeah. Okay, uh, maybe one last question for tonight. So this is a situation I've run into. I, I talk with a lot of other developers, and, and I know many of my developer friends are running into exactly the same issue, where we're seeing building inspectors, politicians making demands upon us developers that are outside the written requirements for the city. For yep. example, yep. You know, yeah. one building yeah. had an approved zoning, both you know mm-hmm. coverage and density, and they're actually and, and an approved building permit. They're actually at foundation, and a new inspector came on the scene demanding that they reduce the height of the building to comply with the zoning, even though yep. they had already a zoning approval. Right. What do you do? No, nothing. At that point, you tell the inspector that's fine. I got it. I've done everything that's legal. I'm a, the existing zoning. I've got the right to build it. I've got my building permit. I've got my money lined up, and I've got all my investors lined up, and I've got to build a building and that that that. that, that outlined i'm not going to make the change and that's the end of it when you go to when you go once you got the permit you're in the ground and building they've already approved your plans yes all right now once they've approved your plans you go out and you build it forget they could change the zoning 18 times or whatever it is at this later on you're there what well, now you're vested and once you're vested at that point you got the right to build it now, right. I can understand that at this point that you may want to, in order to get the permit, you have to give, give some, some different, different projects or additional things to make them happy. But the, you forget the, you know, building inspector is not the answer. Building inspector is not the, uh, the, the municipality. It's not the government. They can say, once you got the permit, you're in business. To get the permit, what you have to do to get the permit is different. That's well, what sure. the government or whoever is can hold you up. But once you got it, you're in, and I would say just develop it. Say, I can't. Well, it's going to cost me more money. I can't do it. Well, the, no, but in this instance, the inspector is working for the city. They're the ones that are approving moving forward to the next stage of the construction. The next stage is construction, but it's got, they can't hold, hold it back. <laughs> in other words, if you're complying, with the the the, uh, the the zoning laws, and you're building it, the building right. inspector does not have the right to hold you to hold back or say no. If you can say what is legal, if he changes it and says says by the way at this point this is a, this is a change now what we're doing is A B C and D you've you're locked in when you have the building permit and you file a plan. Right. You don't so have to make that change. So go to their supervisor, escalate it, or whatever you have to do. You go to, to the supervisor and say, hey, if you're going to insist upon this at this point, you're going to hold up my building. I'm going to come after you. You're going to be responsible for all my damages for, for holding up construction. Right. You gave me the right to build. I am building. And now you tell me you want to change. And you put enough pressure on them, they'll back off. 
Okay. Well, here's a little different twist. Um, right now we're actually in the middle of a zoning discussion with the city, and um, there's there's actually a detention pond built to a 10-year flood uh, specification, which yep. is what's yep. required. Now, the yep. uh, politicians are reacting to the recent floods in Houston and are now demanding 25-year flood water. I understand. Yeah. So, meanwhile, do you have a pillar permit? We have a zoning approval from the building, de- uh, from the from the zoning department, but it has yep. not gone to city council for a vote. So the politicians are saying, "I want 25 year. It doesn't matter." What uh, you got it. Hey, hey, at this point, you can take politicians can say whatever they want. If you want to build it, you're going to have to live with it. Okay. In other words, once you got the building permit, that's different. But to get the building permit. They can come up, and I've seen all kinds of things where I say, you want it, I want a park with with, with the, for, for children, I want this, I want trees, I want all of this. In order to get the permit, they can do whatever they want because they haven't issued the permit. And this is just a variation that they want something that will go 30 years or 20 years or what have you. Okay, so they're basically you're saying there, there are no rules at that stage of the game? None. None that, they, none that you can control. There are rules that whatever they want to make, they can. Okay. And the question is at this point, I don't, I don't know what it is that uh, that 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 you, you can maybe compromise and say, well, you want to flood thirty years, flood whatever it is, can't we do twenty five or whatever, or exactly what's involved, what's it going to cost you? So it's a it's a monetary aspect. Yes. So you can say, okay, I can live with it. So, and and but and space too. Control. Yeah, detention ponds take up uh, real estate, so you don't want to. They sure do. Yeah. They sure do. So do par- so do parks. Yes. So yes. does green space, which they have the right to tell you. So they can it's it's their ballpark until you get the permit. Excellent advice. Well, okay. I think we're at the top of the hour here. George, thanks again for uh, all the Bye. wisdom. You're welcome. My my pleasure. You know, we'll talk again next week, next month. Looking forward to it. Okay, good, and then keep the questions coming. They're real good questions. Awesome, so thank you. We got the problems. We, we we can we can help them solve them. Uh, have a okay. great evening, I'm George. Thanks off. so much. You too. Okay. Cheers. Bye for now.